last week by the grace of God and the help of St. Gregory Palamas and Father Athanasius Mithilineos, uh, we explained the second commandment under the light of the New Testament. Do not make unto yourself an idol. And we explained that an idol is something, some, uh, an image of a God that does not exist. An image of a God that does not exist is an idol. We also spend most of the time to explain and defend our holy icons because some other Christian believers to this day, even though we have weeping icons, even though we have fragrant icons, and most of you had the opportunity to, to smell the heavenly scent of some of the icons that we had here last week. Even though this happens all over the world to, uh, to this day, Christian believers look at the icons as a graven image. And of course, we mentioned that the central theme of this commandment and the central theme of the Seventh Ecumenical Council was that now we can describe God because he became man. It was not possible to have icons in the Old Testament because God was indescribable. But in the New Testament, because of the incarnation, Christ became man, and now we can describe him. So this was the struggle of the church for close to 100 years at the uh, and of course the seventh ecumenical council decreed that yes icons can be venerated they can be uh, given honorary worship the greek word is proskinesis proskinesis when we uh, do proskinesis to a saint we venerate the saint Absolute worship only belongs to God. And St. Gregory Palamas mentions this in uh, his writings in the Philokalia. We will not worship anything created. The only absolute worship belongs to God. And St. Gregory continues that you will not only venerate the icons of Christ, uh, the icon of Christ, you would only venerate the icons of the saints, but you will also venerate the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the weapon of the Christians. The Greek word is tropion. Tropion means the trophy of Christ. He says you will make the sign of the cross because the power of the cross of Christ is great. He also says that the sign, this sign, this sign, and many people might not understand this, but we'll try to explain it. The sign of the cross was also creating miracles in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. We mentioned a couple of miracles last week that took place in the Old Testament. And these miracles prefigure the sign of the cross, the uncreated energy of the cross of Christ. I want to mention just a few miracles in the Old Testament, and you will see how the cross of Christ comes into play even in the Old Testament. Right after the Red Sea, the episode there where Moses carved the sea. The, the scripture says that he struck the sea one time vertically and once horizontally. And of course, that makes the sign of the cross. But also, a few, uh, a little bit before that, before Pharaoh would allow the Israelites to depart, to leave, God told Moses that is going to let you go after this plague. And this is what I want you to do. 
tell the Israelites to kill a male lamb without blemish and take the blood of the male lamb get the blood dip it in the, get a rag dip it in the blood and then mark the doorposts with this blood and the lintel the horizontal post mark that and mark the vertical posts with the blood of the lamb which is the holy cross so here we can see the energy of the cross of Christ in the Old Testament also a few days after the parting of the sea the Israelites are now in the desert and after walking for three days they became very very thirsty not too many rivers in the desert because God wants to test them he wants to test them he wants to discipline them and of course they forget all of a sudden they forget about the, this great miracle and they are beginning to threaten to uh, actually threaten Moses and telling him you brought us here to kill us of thirst what are we going to drink Moses and finally they reached uh, Mara there's some uh, water there some springs like an oasis they try to drink but what was their water what was wrong with the water it was very very bitter it was extremely bitter they, they couldn't put it on their lips so they cried to Moses and Moses cried unto God and God told him what God showed him a tree he says cut from this specific tree cut a branch and throw it in the water immediately after that the water became extremely sweet and they were able to drink it so this wood the wood prefigures the cross because the cross of Christ will take the sting out of Hades just like the wood in the Old Testament took the bitterness out of the water and we'll continue with a couple more examples of this greatness of the cross and how the prophets glorified the sign the sign of the cross in Exodus 17 12 after the disbelief of the Israelites God would allow the enemies to attack them from all sides to discipline them so they would begin to depend on God and uh, the Amalekites the people of Amalek they are attacking and they're very very powerful and the Israelites are fighting and Moses goes up to the mountain and when Moses is holding his hands this way the Israelites are winning basically he is prefiguring the crucifixion when, when his hands are up the battle is being won by the Israelites when his hands were tired and they would fall the Amalekites would begin to win so now the only way to win was for someone to keep Moses's hands up all day long okay. so Aaron was one of the people that was holding the one arm up who was the other one the name of the other person was her they would hold his arms up like this all day long until they totally destroyed the power of the enemy just like Christ when he stretched his hands upon a cross he totally destroyed the power of the devil in Ezekiel 9:4, Ezekiel the prophet is seeing a vision because again the Israelites the people of God are beginning to fall into idolatry the priests are instead of praying to the true God they are looking towards the east and they are worshiping the Sun idolatry is spread all over the people of God and God is extremely concerned and angry of course and he appears in a vision to Ezekiel and he tells him and in this vision he tells 
six executioners to go out and kill everybody who's worshiping idols. Now, this is a vision. But first go and put the mark on the forehead of all those who are still maintaining faith in the true God. But mark in the Phoenician language meant the letter T. The mark was the letter T. But what does the letter T look like? Like a cross. So again, this uh, man in white linen, who happens to be Jesus Christ before the incarnation in Ezekiel, he tells, uh, he tells the prophet and these executioners to put the letter T of their mark on the foreheads of all the people of God. Just like in the days before the Antichrist, the people that have the sign of Christ, the Holy Cross, and they believe in the power of the cross, they will be protected from the Antichrist. And of course, the Antichrist will put his mark on his people. And the mark will be 666. Uh, the uh, number of his name uh, will be 666, actually, in the very last days of history, the last three, three and a half uh, days of history. In Kings 1717, the widow of Zarephath uh, was very hospitable to Elijah the prophet. Elijah was persecuted by uh, Jezebel. There was no food, and by the way, Elijah will come back again. Elijah was one of those people that never died. Elijah the prophet never died. He's uh, being kept somewhere in this created universe alive. Alive. He never died. He took off in a chariot, as the scripture tells us. So also another person, Enoch, that has never died, who was taken up. So these two people, these two martyrs, these two olive trees, as the book of the Revelation tells us, will come back in the last years, the years of the Antichrist, to strengthen the Christians. Now, Prophet Elijah is being persecuted by Jezebel. There's no water. He's praying because everybody's falling into idolatry. Prayer stops and rainfall stops. There's been no rain for like three years. There's famine everywhere. So crows are actually feeding Prophet Elijah. But now he goes to Zarephtha because uh, the little stream that he was drinking water from, it also dried. So he goes to this widow, who was very pious, stays there. She only has five, six uh, pieces of bread left. And instead of just feeding her children, and you see how pious this lady was, she invites him in to feed him as well. So what's six pieces of bread? We're going to die anyway, so let's eat them and glorify God. Of course, the flour never diminished. They were baking and baking, and the flour continued to multiply. But after a few weeks, something happened. See, good, uh, bad things do happen to good people. Her son died. And she says, man of God, you came in here and you reminded God that I'm a, a great sinner. And now he took my son. Elijah went upstairs and the scripture says he stretched himself out. He stretched his hands. He laid the young man, the boy, on the bed. And he stretched himself out three times. He stretched over the body of the dead boy. Again, the power of the cross used by Prophet Elijah many, many hundreds of years before of the crucifixion. About 50, 16 years ago, I was visiting my father in Lancaster. He used to read a lot, but uh, he only went to third grade in school. Some Jehovah Witnesses came to the door. And he was telling me that uh, they were asking him, how can you possibly honor a killing weapon? How can you honor a killing weapon? Let's say that uh, someone used a knife to kill your son. Would you take that knife and put it in your 
I can stand. Let's say that somebody took a brick and used it and kill a family member. Would you honor this killing weapon? Of course, my father did not know how to really come back at this. He wasn't really confused, but he was just a little disturbed. And of course they left. And uh, this is exactly how the heretics and people who hate the cross of Christ, people who are energized by the devil, this is how they look at the cross. The cross in the Old Testament was a killing weapon. And a person who died on the cross was cursed. And this is why the Jews wanted Christ to die on the cross, to stigmatize him, to let everybody know that he's the greatest of criminals. But to help you in this, we will go into the Old Testament again. David, when he killed Goliath, little David, the giant Goliath, he killed him. And then he did not have, he only had a slingshot, and by the power of God, you know, he killed Goliath. And then he went and he took the sword of Goliath, the weapon of Goliath, he took it out of its sheath. So again, remember this now. David takes the weapon of Goliath, uses it, and cuts the head of Goliath off. What does he do with the sword? Does he throw it away? No. He keeps it as the symbol of his victory. And he takes this sword and takes it to the priest and this sword is kept in the sanctuary the weapon that killed Goliath and of course Saul got a little jealous Saul was the king and when he heard the Israelites yelling in the streets Saul has killed thousands but David has killed tens of thousands he became very envious and he wanted to kill David. So David takes off with no weapons, nothing, because he's trying to kill him, takes off, goes to another city, and he goes to priest Abimelech in the sanctuary. I want to mention this because it's a, it's, it's a great point here. The priest says, uh, David has a few of his soldiers along with him. And David asks the priest. Now, the priest doesn't know what's going on. He does not know that, uh, uh, you know, David is actually being uh, chased by, by the king. And David did not uh, volunteer this kind of information. He said that king just sent me on a mission. And he asks the, the priest, do you have anything for us to eat and the priest says I really don't have anything the only thing that I have is holy bread holy bread and you can eat this holy bread as long as your soldiers have not had marital relations for three days Actually, the, uh, David says this. They have not been with a woman for three days, and then he allowed him to have some of this bread that was already blessed. It was used for the sacrifice. And then he asked the priest, he asked the priest, do you have any weapon here? Do you have, because I was in a hurry and I didn't take one along, do you have any kind of a sword? 
I only have the one that you used to kill Goliath. And David goes, give me that one. There is none like it. And later on, the weapon that killed Goliath was kept in the temple of Solomon. Does that make sense now? Is it beginning to become clear why we venerate the cross? Because the cross was a weapon in the hands of the devil in the Old Testament. It was to kill probably innocent people and all kinds of people, hang them on a tree. But now Christ grabs this weapon from the devil. He actually goes on the cross. He goes on the cross and he uses this very weapon to bait the devil. And now by the power of the cross, the devil is destroyed. His power is destroyed. And now the cross becomes the tropeon or the trophy or the greatest sign of Christianity. The power of the cross is great, is great. The demons sizzle. We have stories from the history of the church. Even people who voluntarily went to demons, I mean to, uh, uh, to mediums, to oracles, Julian the Apostate, he wanted to know if he should go to battle with this enemy. So what they would do is they would go to uh, a medium. They had oracles, like the oracles of Delphi in Greece, you know, your mythology and your history. The oracle, the people in there were servants of the devil. Demons would be giving them some information. So Julian the Apostate goes and says, ask the powers if I would win this battle or not. But when he went in, and all of a sudden, he saw some demonic beings visually, he was horrified, and out of habit, he made the sign of the cross, even though he was not a believer. But he saw his mother and his grandmother making the sign of the cross, so he automatically just uh, out of habit, he made it the sign of the cross. The demons took off. They left. And the priests of the idols told him, look, uh, these powers out here, they're not very happy. You made the sign of the cross. He goes back again. And for the second time, he made the sign of the cross. Again, the same thing happened. So the sign of the cross actually burns and horrifies the demons. It reminds them, it reminds them the catastrophe that happened to them on Golgotha. <clears throat> so the sign of the cross was glorified in the Old Testament. St. Gregory Palamas continues and says that, but also in the second coming of Christ, the sign that will come forth first and it will shine through the entire universe will be the sign of the cross. The sign of the cross. The sign of the cross will be shining throughout the entire, the entire earth and everybody will see it, even those that speared him. Even those one person speared Christ one person, but all of us, with our unrepentant sins, we continually spear Christ. Those sins are wiped away when we go to Holy Confession. If we continue to sin, we spear the body of Christ all over again. Those Christians, those Orthodox. And St. Gregor says, glorify the sign of the cross, glorify. In other words, be a true Christian now. Have the sign of crucifixion on you, 
A Christian is someone who's crucified. We crucify our flesh. We crucify our passions. Put the sign of the cross on you. Glorify the sign of the cross now. So when you see the cross of Christ coming to the heavens, you will have joy and you will have boldness. And you will be resurrected. And you will also, and he repeats again, and you will also venerate the icons of the saints because they were co-crucified with Christ. What were the saints? Icons of Christ. Little Christ. God's by grace. St. Paul says, I share in the sufferings of Christ. I participate in the sufferings of Christ. How do we participate in the sufferings of Christ? By living as Christians. By living as true Christians. We will be mocked. We will be ridiculed. We will, uh, sure, uh, there's, all kinds, there's all kinds of discrimination against Christians today. Heavy discrimination. You can go to a class, to a library, you can have the Quran, you can have New Age books, you can have every book of idolatry, you can have pornography, because pornography is idolatry. But the minute you have a Bible, all of a sudden you have the ACLU, how is it? Okay. They're all over you immediately with attorneys. So you will venerate the icons of Christ and you will make the sign of the cross before you kiss them because they were co-crucified with Christ and they co-suffered they were participants in the sufferings of Christ you will also venerate the incorrupt bodies of the saints. The Greek word is lipsano, and it's translated as relics. You will also venerate the relics or the bones of the saints. What are the relics of the saints? We have relics here, and by the way, in every Greek Orthodox in every Orthodox church. We cannot have a church without the relics of the saints. In our uh, altar, in the pillar, the central pillar, in Greek it's called kalamos, inside there, every church has relics of the saints because our church is built on the bodies of the saints, on the bodies of holiness, of holy people. And uh, before our church is consecrated, we take the relics of the saints. The bishop has a, uh, I've never been to a church consecration yet, but uh, the, the bishop takes a uh, little disc, silver disc, and puts the relics on the disc. And there's a litany three times around the church. The pattern. The same, the, the pattern that we use for the body of Christ, the bishop uses the, uh, the same um, utensil to, to put the relics of the saints, and then we walk around the church three times. What are the saints, what are they doing? They are somehow placing um, a, a holy electronic fence around the church to keep the demons out and to say, that this is holy ground. This is holy ground. Let's not forget, the prince of this world is the devil. When we baptize babies, we have exorcism. There's an exorcism there. The priest is actually exorcising demons out of the water. That's why he, when he uh, blows three times, he's actually burning demons. Holy people have seen flames coming out of the mouth of priests at that particular moment, burning demons who leave their possession, that little baby. And now that baby becomes part of the body 
of Christ, a member of the body of Christ. St. John Chrysostom says that the relics of the saints are depositories of grace. The healing power flows from the soul to the body, from the body to the clothing, from the clothing to the shoes, and from the shoes to the shadows. And this is scriptural, I may add. St. Peter, a few days after Pentecost, and the church needed all the help it could get in those early years. There was so much power of the apostles. They were resurrecting dead people. It's very hard to, I mean, an atheist can sit there and say, well, you know, it's just, to me, I don't see anything great here. To, I mean, an atheist can sit there and say, well, you know, it's just, to me, I don't see anything great here. Just like an atheist went to this uh, saying right here, his whole body is incorrupt in Greece, and uh, this was a doctor, Ginevia, and he says, it's just a mummy. Just a mummy. A few years later, this doctor is on his deathbed. He's dying of an uh, incurable disease. And the saint appears to him and tells him, you called me a mummy, but now I'm going to heal you by the grace of Jesus Christ. And immediately he was healed. But St. John the Russian, a saint that was enslaved by the Turks at the age of 20, 21, after a battle with the Russians, he was a slave into a Turkish home with extreme oppression. They tried to make him Muslim. He refused. He says, I'll tell you right now, just take my head. It'll give me a great joy. Just cut my head off. If you try to make me a Muslim, cut my head off right now. You know, but don't ask me to change my faith. And this got their respect. And uh, he was sleeping with the donkeys and the horses in the stables for over 20 years. And after he began to make miracles and healing Muslims and Greeks and everybody, now they said, here, we'll give you your own apartment. No, thank you. I'll, I'll, stay, I'll stay in the in a stable and he died at the age of 40 years old and his body is incorrupt and if you're ever in Greece the uh, peninsula of Evia or Halkida is it Evia? Evia. Thousands of miracles take place every year. So how can you deny this? This is this is undeniable. <clears throat> so St. John of Chrysostom says that the grace goes to the objects of the saints but remember in the Acts of the Apostles when the Christians would be waiting around for St. Paul to lay down his handkerchief, okay? He would wipe his sweat, you know, from making tents. He would get up to go teach because I think at 2 o'clock he had his Bible class. <laughs> no Bible back then. Okay, it was all verbal. It was all tradition. There was no letters. There was no Bible until the uh, 410. This Bible as we know it today was finalized at 410 A.D. But St. Paul was teaching, and he was teaching with miracles and power and resurrections. Today, we teach with words. But back then, they taught with power, the power of God. It got people's attention very quickly. Christians, once they found out that these things were miraculous, they would hide, and they would take his sweaty handkerchiefs, run to the sick people, put it on, and they would become healed. And people would line up the streets so the shadow of Peter would pass over them and they would be healed. The scripture is screaming about this, about grace using material things as a vehicle. But most non-Orthodox look at the relics of the saints as idols. Remember when the Lord was touched by the woman with the issue of blood. And he says, someone touched me. And Peter says, 
Lord, what are you talking about? There's thousands of people here. Everybody's pushing us. Everybody's squeezing us. And someone touched you? Of course someone No, no. Someone touched me. I felt energy leaving my body. He felt grace leaving his holy body. And immediately, this woman started jumping around who had the, the issue of blood for 18 years. She was instantly healed. But Christ says, the miracles that I will do, those you will do. He told this to his disciples. And you will even do greater miracles than these. And this is what, what do we have in the Orthodox Church. We have extremely miraculous relics of the saints. Thousands of people are being healed worldwide. St. John of Damascus says that our Lord Jesus Christ has supplied us with fountains of salvation through the relics of the saints. And out of these relics, untold miracles spring forth. St. Basil says, he who touches the bones of a Christian martyr receives sanctification. He becomes a communicant of this grace which is deposited in the body. Let's make a mental note of this. The grace is deposited even in the body. The body is not filthy. The body is not evil. The ancient Greeks and the dualists, they always thought soul is good, body is bad. And many times we say, I just want to save my soul. No, you don't just want to save your soul. You want to save your soul and your body. The body is very important. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And St. John the Chrysostom, with his wealth of emotionalism, he says, let's embrace and hug the relics of the saints because grace goes even to their metal cases, the lipsanothiki. And when we touch, when we touch the relics of the saints, we receive grace. And we will explain all this, just bear with me because this is a little bit theological here. We'll use uh, Kavasilas to explain what happens and why this grace gets deposited on the body. So in the martyrdom of St. Polycarp, his uh, autobiographer writes, so he collected the charred remains, St. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna was burnt by the Romans, poor uh, influenced by the Jews in Smyrna, because in Smyrna was the synagogue of Satan that we spoke about last year, and that synagogue of Satan eventually became Christian. They became Christian, as we'll see in our studies uh, after December in the book of the Revelation as we continue, this, that synagogue, most of them became Christians. They believe in Christ. So we collected the chart, remains, the bones, the relics of St. Polycarp, because for us, these are more precious than precious stones, more valuable than 24 karat gold, the relics of the saints. So we see that the presence of the relics is a great blessing, not only because of the special grace found in us, St. John of Chrysostom says, but their valor motivates us. It motivates us to take on spiritual struggles. So we become motivated when, when today we cannot fast for a little bit because we think that our children, you know, they might lose a few pounds or, you know, they might become sick, okay? And we're afraid to fast our children. When we fast, we have the blessing of God. God is not going to allow us to get sick. We would have gotten sick anyway. It's not because of fasting. <clears throat> St. Gideon, the neo-martyr in Greece, about 150, 200 years ago, Ali Pasha is forcing him to become a Turk. We have hundreds of thousands of Greeks that were forced to become Muslims, and they martyr. They died for their faith. And the Pasha goes, I will cut you up. I'm going to start cutting your legs and your feet off. And he says, go ahead. But I want to ask you for a favor. Can you start with my legs first? Okay. So they cut both of his legs. Now, can you please cut my left 
my left arm off first. And the executioners were, they couldn't believe this. And why did you leave the right hand last so I can cross myself one more time? And after that, they beheaded him. When we hear stories like this, doesn't our day become just a little bit easier? <laughs> you think we have problems in, in the courtroom there, <laughs> Stanley? <laughs> we have no problems today. We just have no faith. That's all. <laughs> so these are Christian monuments. The relics of the saints are Christian monuments. When we go to the Holy Mountain, when we go to the monasteries, when we go and see the relics of St. Ekaterini in Mount Sinai, when we see these champions of our faith, it's like us, uh, you know, like uh, officers or uh, generals going to war museums and watching, uh, you know, the, uh, the belongings of Napoleon or the belongings of Alexander the Great, you know. It's excellent for those who are going to be in the army and they're going to be officers. In the same way, when we have the relics of the saints, we have the best of the best of Christianity right in front of us. St. John Christopher says that our city, and of course speaking of Constantinople most likely, our city possesses a formidable wall in the relics of the saints, much more powerful than our stone walls. How many times did the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, save the city? How many times St. Spiridon saved Corfu? Two, three hundred Turkish boats outside? All of a sudden, all the people of Corfu fall down in front of the icon of St. Spiridon. A huge tornado starts and destroys 200 boats of the Turks. This is 1731, a miracle that those people celebrate every year. St. Demetrius of Salonika has saved that city many, many times. And now you may ask again, now how does this take place? How can someone who died 1500 years ago 1800 years ago how can they maintain this grace how is this possible what happens and the answer is given to us in our most theological prayer by nicholas gavasilas the great orthodox theologian he calls this it's one of his prayers, prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God. We'll only refer to a small section of this prayer. <clears throat> All those who revered your ineffable philanthropy, and they maintain communion with you by keeping your commandments. See why you're studying the Ten Commandments? We cannot love God without keeping the commandments. Christ says, he who loves me is the one who keeps my commandments. When we lie a little bit, when we cheat a little bit, when we steal a little bit, we love Christ a little bit. All those who revere your ineffable philanthropy and they maintain communion with you by keeping your commandments and abiding in your love these you joined with yourself as the head is united with the members of the body. And they became one spirit with you. And you were poured out in their souls and their bodies. You flooded them with your grace. Thus, and, and you were intermixed with them, thus becoming one with them. And when somebody is one with Christ, Gavasilas says, just like St. Gideon just mentioned, a man can easily take off our clothing. My relationship with Christ is not as the relationship of my clothing to my body. The executioner can actually begin to peel our skin off, but if we are one with Christ, Christ is deeper than our skin. St. Haralambos, 
February 10th. He was skinned alive at the age of 110. He was a priest, 110. He was skinned. But you see, Christ is deeper than our skin level. Christ's union with my body is more intense. My torturer can remove my teeth my hair, my eyes, my skin, St. Kavasala says, my tongue, but he cannot take Christ away from me. St. Kavasala says, they can take your body, take your belongings, but only you can give your soul away. Nobody can take your soul unless you give it away. Even their dust and their bones are full of your graces, Gavasilas continues. Even their dust in the tomb. A few weeks ago, we went to Saxonburg when one of our very saintly abbesses, Vaxiarchia, was being ex exhumed, and a number a number of people who were digging the ground okay and these are serious people that we know for years okay they have been witnesses of fragrance from the soil the soil becomes fragrant as well and that's why you'll see people actually take some soil from the ground of saint nectarios also they'll take a little cotton and they will pass it over the skull of St. Barbara or St. Paraskevi because the grace goes again from the soul to the clothing, from the soul to the body, from the body to the clothing, as Christians have sense, and then from the clothing to the metal cases. And anything that touches, anything that touches those relics receives grace. Remember last week when we mentioned that Elisha was dead in a tomb somewhere? This is a couple thousand years ago in the Old Testament. And these people that were burying a relative, they saw a band of thieves coming and they threw this dead person in the tomb of Elisha. And guess what? This person was not Orthodox was not even Jewish, it was a Moabite. Instantly he jumped up, he was resurrected from the dead. Because of the dead bones, these are not dead bones. As we will see in a little bit, these are more alive now than when the saints were alive on earth. And Kavasilis continues. And he explains the central point was the body of Christ was not separated from divinity when he died, when Christ died. Christ has a human soul, a human body, and a human soul. Christ is fully human, fully human and fully God. He's the God-man. His body is in a tomb. His soul is in Hades. They're two separated. That's what death is all about, the separation of the body from the soul. Vassal says that divine nature was not separated because God is everywhere. So the divine nature was not separated from the soul or the body. Divinity maintain its union with both of these, the body and the soul. The same principle holds true for the saints. Kavasala says, even though the saints died and their body was disunited with their soul, the soul goes to paradise, and the body stays in the grave, Christ is united with the body in the tomb 
and the soul of the saint in paradise. Because these saints achieved theosis, the Holy Spirit, Christ, the triune God, stays with that body forever. Does not leave. So divinity does not separate, but it remains united with both elements of the human existence. And as the souls of the holy ones are in the palm of your hands, so that's where when people they die, their souls go in the palm of God in paradise. The scripture says that as the souls of the holy ones are in the palm of God, in the same way their bodies have you as a permanent resident. So the permanent resident of the relics of the saints is Christ. A permanent resident. He's a resident in the relics of the saints permanently. And for this reason, the relics of the saints are dreadful to the demons. The demons are horrified. I know some of you, when we travel, please, next time you go to Greece, try to go to some of these proskinimata, monasteries. To, 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 uh, more, we celebrate the memory of St. Gerasimus. St. Gerasimus is known uh, for the gift of uh, demon, of, of saving demon-possessed people. Demon-possessed people will go tomorrow, tomorrow at his church. There'll be dozens demon-possessed people at his church in Kefalunia. And the miracles there are unbelievable. Uh, some of these stories, you know, it's a very scary thing. But it does happen. Unfortunately, here in this country, we don't see anything like that because, number one, we don't believe in relics of the saints. We don't believe in saints. And uh, the minute we see somebody acting a little funny, we put them in a mental hospital. But in Greece, you have a lot of demon-possessed people that you'll see in churches. They normally do not harm anyone. <laughs> they usually don't. Okay. Unless God allows them. <laughs> so demoniacs who are brought to these saints for healing go berserk by the energy of their occupants. The demons know when there's a relic of the saint nearby. They know it. Remember the story last week? We have the tape uh, about this young man in Chicago. Just an icon. wasn't even the relic of the saint. It was just an icon of Christ, the transfiguration. So this, uh, the, uh, the demons inside the people, the sick people, they scream that they are burning. You are burning me. This is something very, very common. When a demon-possessed person will go very close to the relics of the saints. They'll start screaming that they're burning. What are they burning from? From the body of a saint, like Saint Spiridon? He, he died 1,650 years ago. What's in that body that's burning them? It's the fire of hell. The fire of hell. And what is this fire of hell? The cauldrons and uh, you know big boilers, not quite. See, these are pictures. These are images, anthropomorphic images, that the scriptures use, so we can get an idea of the suffering. The suffering will be worse. However, there are no objects like that in hell. Is God in hell? Yes, God is everywhere. God is everywhere. God is everywhere. But what is hell? The absence of the glory of God. What burns, what burns is the light of God. The light of God will be burning the unrepented sinners in hell and the demons. It's the uncreated light, the light, or the glory of God. The glory of God and the glory of Christ. 
but this glory of God reaches the demons of fire. They cannot stand, they cannot stand this light because their deeds are dark. That's what burns them. God is light. And the light passes, radiates to the righteous, to the people of God. But the same light without the illuminating quality reaches hell. The same light of God. But in the kingdom of God, the faithful, those that love God, will have this bliss of the light be basking in the glory of God. But this light somehow becomes filtered out when it reaches hell. And the same light goes to hell with its burning quality. The light somehow stays in the kingdom of God. And what reaches hell and the condemned is the burning quality of this light of God. Christ says, Fos afenges, a lightless light. That's what he calls hell, Gehenna. A lightless, a light without any kind of illumination. And it is this burning quality of this light. Just to give you a quick example, just to give you a little bit of rest, if we are at the seashore, okay, and that's Christianity is all about, we're supposed to prepare our bodies to be able to take this light of God. Because It's not that God doesn't want to put us in heaven. We will not be able to take the power of this light. We can't stand there. We won't be able to, to stay there with the power of this divine illumination. Just like we're at the seashore, we put some kind of lotion on us to protect us from the sun. If you put a baby out there without any protection, in a few, day, in a few hours, it'll die. The same light, the same sun, the same sun, that actually makes people have fun and you know get a suntan and you enjoy it because you're prepared. You have prepared your skin properly. The same way, if we prepare ourselves as Christians to have the Christian characteristics, to have the sign of the cross on us, so we are people of virtue, then we will be welcomed in this great banquet. And the light of God you know, will become blissful and great joy but for somebody who is separated from God staring into God will be like hell it's like the demoniacs what is with you and us Christ what you want it with us you came to condemn us before the time they know that the time is coming they know it's like in the transfiguration Holy Transfiguration, Peter and John and James, they were basking in this uncreated light and Peter is lost for words and he's saying, Lord, it's good for us to be here. It's great to be here. Uh, should we start building some tents? We should stay here forever. There's no demons there at that time. They would, they would, be, they would be burnt to a crisp with all that glory of Christ on Mount Tabor. The demons flee. This is why the relics cure souls and heal incurable diseases. Because you, our Lord, left these holy relics behind because of your love and your philanthropy to aid those who still live on earth. So these are depositories of grace. These are like spiritual reserves. You know how we have mineral reserves and we have oil reserves and right now we're concerned about the price of oil and what's going to happen and uh, you know energy. 
we need spiritual reserves. And these spiritual reserves on earth are left behind for us in the relics of the saints. The saints are present. The saints are truly present in their relics. They are truly present. They're not present like just they're, they are present. This saint, which I hope you get to visit someday in Greece, he talks to other saints, talks to them. Other saints see his relics disappear when he goes to help people out. And he's saying to one of our saint, saintly fathers, just passed away five, six years ago, Yaakov Tzalikis, who was a, a neighbor of his, a very saintly father. You know, people come and they think I'm dead, and most of them come just, just out of curiosity. But I hear them. He's talking to him. He says, I hear them. I see them. You know, he says, there's a lot of sin in the world. Father Yaakov, there's too much sin in the world. And he told him, that there has to be a war. This is 1992. There has to be a war. There has to be a war. There has to be a war. And Yaakov says, No, my saint, I've been through wars all my life. I don't want to hear about another war. There's too much sin around. And of course, the icons of the saints, these saints who pray for us constantly, that's all they do in paradise. They're constantly praying for us. They weep because of the state of this humanity. 